This is a recording of the debate, Artificial Intelligence in Schools, Where's the Humanity?, which took place at the Battle of Ideas Festival on Saturday the 2nd of November 2019. Okay, good morning everybody, good morning, welcome to the Battle of Ideas, welcome to Artificial Intelligence in Schools, Where's the Humanity?, so this is the first session in the Technological Futures Strand, which is taking place this room, all throughout the uh, day in this room. My name's Harley Richardson. I help run the Academy of Ideas Education Forum. We organise regular public debates on all matters education. I've also worked in digital education publishing for over 20 years now and I've been watching with interest the whole discussion about AI and education has developed. I should also say I'm battling a battle of my own with my wisdom tooth and having to teach myself how to speak again this week, so please bear, bear with me on that front. But anyway, artificial intelligence, um, $500 million business already. Uh, basically, it's machines and computers that emulate some aspect of uh, human intelligence. So if you're here today, I guess, you've probably noticed that people have written, um, have been writing blogs and articles, talking at conferences, even giving evidence in Parliament saying that AI is going to radically transform education and may even pose a massive existential threat. Um, so here's a couple of quotes just to give a flavour of the sort of things that people <coughs> have been saying. The first one's back, way back in 1956. Uh, the cognitive scientist John McCarthy, he's the guy who coined the term artificial intelligence. And he said, every aspect of learning or any other feature of intelligence can, in principle, be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. Very bold claim. And if we zoom forward to last year, so Anthony Selden, he's the vice chancellor of the University of Buckingham, he wrote a book claiming that our current education system teaches children to be robots, to behave like machines. However, he said, hope is at hand. AI can come along, take over the robotic, repetitive elements of education and free up teachers and pupils to become more fully human. To become more fully human. Sounds great. So, are either of these statements correct? If, if we automate everything that can be automated in the classroom, what does that leave for teachers to do? What, if anything, is uniquely human about being a teacher? So that's what we're here to discuss. Uh, we have an excellent panel of speakers with very real intelligences here today to help us explore these questions and others besides. So firstly, on my far left, we have Donald Clark. He is the CEO of Wildfire Learning, uh, the world's first AI content creation service. He's an edtech entrepreneur and a professor with many years of experience. Um, working with teachers in schools and higher education, um, so he's going to be bringing some element of that to, to the discussion today. And he's currently writing a book called uh, AI for Learning, um, which will be published by Kogan Page in, uh, in the new year. Next we have uh, Carla Ayert, uh, director of the Tomorrow Institute. Now I think that's tomorrow with all the vowels taken out. Uh, the Tomorrow Institute aims to help EdTech fulfil its promise of extending a quality education to every child in the world. Carl is also a member of the AI Expert ne uh, Network at the uh, World Ed Economic Forum. Then my right, immediate right, we have Jen Person, who is Director of Digital <laughs> Defend Me, Digital Defend Me, um, which uh, campaigns for fair, transparent, and ethical use of personal data in education. As you may be aware, data is the bread and butter of um, AI. Uh, and Jen has also supported regulatory cases in, on behalf of children, including those involving AI. 
And then last but not least, on my far right, we have Gareth Sturdy, who is a functional skills teacher, former Fleet Street journalist, and a fellow organiser of the Academy of Ideas Education Forum. Gareth has experience working behind the scenes at an AI tutoring company and has also been a vocal critic of the ongoing formalisation of teaching. So these short uh, introductions don't do justice to our speakers. Please go on to the website to find out all about them. Um, but let, we'll, let's welcome them with a round of applause. So if... Uh, first session at the Battle of Ideas, uh, just to explain how it's, it's going to work, our uh, speakers will talk for between five and seven minutes each. I'll be keeping strict time uh, using a football referee card uh, system. There aren't going to be any penalties or sendings off, um, but yellow card means one minute to go, uh, time to start wrapping up, and red card, card means time's up. So once we've heard from our speakers, uh, we'll go out to the audience. That's you. Um, if this is your first visit to the Battle of Ideas, uh, we have a lot of time for audience discussion. This is a public discussion, not a Q&A, uh, so be thinking about what you would like to say. Um, but anyway, we're going to start off with uh, Donald. Okay. Good morning. So, wh what is this AI thing? Well, it's undoubtedly going to change the workplace. It's already had a profound influence on all of our lives. Almost everything you do online is mediated by AI, whether it's Google, Facebook, Instagram, Netflix, Amazon. But uh, I'd like to start with a sort of definition of AI, a sort of layman's definition, which is useful in education, which is that it's an idiot savant. And I'll illustrate this by example. So I have a Roomba, one of these little robots that come out uh, onto my lower ground floor of my house, and it wipes up the dust beautifully. It has a brain, it mathematically maps the lower end of my house, goes to the stairs, comes back, runs out of juice, plugs itself back into the wall. It's brilliant. But I also have a dog. And if my dog comes out and does a shit in the floor, it will spread it mathematically into every single corner of the room because it's an idiot savant. It's very profoundly clever in doing one thing, but it doesn't know shit. It doesn't know anything. It's not conscious, and Daniel Dennett put it lovely, he's written a whole book on this. AI is competence without comprehension. Competence without comprehension. It has no brain cognitive functions. And we tend to anthropomorphize it and place these things. When we come to the ethical debate, I think that happens a lot. Because AI is actually not as good as you might think. And it's certainly not as bad as some would fear. I think there's a certain hysteria around ethics in AI. There are millions of groups springing up all over the place, all with contradictory frameworks. It's all a bit of a mess. There are some really good people, some of whom are here today as well. Now, just in the last two weeks, to show you how profound some of these shifts have been, two weeks, we had an article in The Lancet that showed, a huge meta-study, that basically AI is as good as human beings on medical imaging, x-rays, uh, CAT scans, and so on. This is a profound moment, because it means that the costs of those things will plummet in the NHS. This is a social good. In the same week, we had a very interesting documentary on Radio 4 showing that AI face recognition, which is lambasted by the ethical people, it was actually hugely successful in breaking several major paedophile rings by identifying the thumbs of those offenders on videos, but also people trafficking and also missing persons. So another amazing example of a social good. And then relating one directly to education, we had just this week Boston City uh, producing a report where they used AI to re-timetable those yellow buses you see in the movies in America. Most kids go in one of those to school. 
Five million a year, five million dollars saved a year that was pumped straight back into classrooms. Now this is happening on a weekly basis. And these are social goods. But let's crawl into the classroom for a moment because it may be questionable as to whether this works in schools or universities or colleges. But think for a moment what's happened over the last few decades with special educational needs, the thing I've been involved in. Often ignored, we have text to speech, we have speech to text for people who are blind or deaf. We have the early diagnosis of dyslexia, free tools available from Microsoft, uh, a, an amazing thing. It's an absolutely shameful what happens to kids in our schools and special educational needs, and you'll know that if you've been involved in it. Also in autism, so there's a whole rack of interesting things which AI has already for decades been helping with. Surely we're not gonna get rid of those uh, 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 through skepticism around the technology. But let's talk about learning in a general sense for everyone else, you know, perhaps uh, you know, for, the, for a normalized population, as it were. We already have a huge amount of learner engagement with chatbots in universities. Uh, these are very recent thing, but you know, if you're arriving at college for the first time, you're 17, 18, finding friends, finding mentors, where is this, where is that? That's now being humanized, in a sense, by a dumb bit of software, but it works. And let me give you an amazing example, perhaps the most famous, out of America, Georgia Tech. Uh, there they had 350 AI students, smart kids, Georgia Tech, straight A students. They had nine teaching assistants. They swapped one out for a piece of AI. It's a chatbot, basically. Not one of the kids <laughs> spotted the fact that it was an AI. And they're AI students. In fact, they put it up for a teaching award. How weird is that? How weird is that? Next year, they'll launch another two AIs. Kids catch on. About 50% of them spotted the AI. But... A huge, a huge number of, the, uh, of those kids also thought that two of the real teachers were AI. In other words, it had sort of passed a weird Turing test. Now, the reason those people loved this is, have you ever emailed a member of faculty asking them about an assignment, and you think it comes back in minutes, days, weeks? Sometimes it doesn't come back at all. That's not teaching. That's not teaching. That's nonsense. This thing came back so quickly, they had to slow it down to make it look as though somebody was typing. These are the advances that are happening in our institutions. And then on attainment itself, I've been involved in a whole rack of projects with apprentices, vocational learning, the rebalancing our system. It's absolutely necessary on that front. Huge adaptive learning projects in ASU, mostly in America, hardly anything's happening in the UK on this, where you see real rises in attainment, and of course, a correlation because you get a fallen dropout. So if you're an American kid at college and you drop out at the end of the first year, not only do you have a student debt, you have a degree, it's catastrophic. So if we can raise early attainment on those 101 courses, we know that people go through and finish their degrees, which must be a good thing. I could go on and on with projects here around assessment, even well-being. Now, there's no doubt that we have a mental health problem in our educational system. The stress and strains that people are put up, put up with from GCS onwards. And of course, we're keeping kids in, and, you know, I think in another couple of decades, we'll be stuck in university until we're 35. You know, there'll be more master's degrees. Everybody's going to do postgraduate stuff. We'll be infantilizing people to a ridiculous degree in the education system and putting them under even more stress. But think about what a young person has to face if they have a mental health problem. Are they going to go to a member of faculty? Are you kidding me? Are you, will you go, uh, uh, you know, a professor of mathematics? I don't think. But they will perhaps go to these anonymous bots. And the fact is they're not human. It's the fact that they're anonymous. And try Wobot, an amazing experience. Try Ellie. These things really are astoundingly clever experiences. Now, I'm going to end on one thing here, which is 
the notion of bias in AI, because I'm no doubt we'll be discussing this. And I, thought, I think we've got to be really careful about anthropomorphizing the problem here. Uh, Steven Pinker famously said that the bias debate in AI is the result of bias itself. In other words, most people are just neophobia. They just don't like tech and want to find bias everywhere. They're offended by anything, and we'll find it wherever it uh, possibly lies in AI. Whereas in actual fact, all humans, all humans are biased. All of you are sexist and racist. Kahneman got a Nobel Prize and showed that you have about 50 biases which are uneducable. You actually can't get rid of them. It's very, very difficult. It's not the case that all AI is biased. In fact, most algorithms are pretty benign and unbiased. And we can remember that AI is largely statistics and probability theory. That whole 2,000 years of mathematics is all, has been all about identifying bias and getting rid of bias. So we have a hope that in the AI systems we can eliminate the bias because that's what the maths does. It's what statistics is. So I think that whole thing about bias in AI is actually a rising tide. I think it will help us as humans become aware of our bias. Don't imagine for one minute that teaching isn't full of bias. Bias against women in STEM subjects, bias against socioeconomic groups. It's ridden with balance, bias, ridden with the stuff. So I think at last we may have a sort of God, Shiva-type godlike position here where, sure, it can do bad things, especially in the military, but in education we have the hope of doing some really socially good things by lowering costs and raising attainment. And to throw the baby out, the baby and the bathwater and the bath out, just because of perceived bias is ridiculous. Okay, thank you. Uh, so there you go, you're all biased, but AI can help with that. Uh, Carla. Okay, so uh, I think the bias thing is a very interesting one. It just shows how AI yeah, might be a reflection of ourselves. But um, going back to uh, the humanity in the classroom, I, th I think the, the topic of this um, talk is actually rather interesting because my question is also, where is the humanity in the classroom now? What do we expect of learners? You know, Donald has hinted at it with, um, you know, sort of the stress that learners have to go through. What do we expect from teachers? You know, ultimately most... Um, education systems are politics and the politics demand that we measure and measure and measure and measure. In fact, whether we learn or whether you know, uh, teachers actually get any satisfaction out of teaching or feel they're actually contributing to a learning process in, in, and the potential of a, a learner is highly debatable in our current system. <clears throat> so I, I don't think necessarily AI is um, therefore going to sort of um, make it worse. Um, so, um, and what I do fear with AI, and, and I'm actually very much with, with Donald on the kind of the hope of AI in, in, in learning, is that, um, and I see this trend already when I talk to a lot of edtech companies, they kind of all claim to, use, to be using AI, and then they kind of go like, yes, we're using AI because we build an adaptive system, but what these adaptive systems are actually doing they're kind of reinforcing the measuring and the binary nature of measuring and telling a student, you know, um, yeah, you didn't answer that question very well, so try it again and try it again and try it again. And potentially reinforcing bad learning uh, or not helping the student learn. They might eventually get to the solution, but they haven't learned the route. Um, so that's, I think, where we have a where I have a problem with AI, it's what, what you know, most people in, in edtech and, and technology space are using it for. Um, it, very much with Donald on the special needs side. Um, the special needs is where AI can do absolutely amazing things and is already doing amazing things. And that's where I think uh, we will see 
the most humane uh, developments of AI, in the short term at least. Um, so um, the other thing I just wanted to highlight um, is that, you know, I've been talking to schools and to tech companies for the past 15 or 17 years, and the, the discussion hasn't moved on at all, which is rather depressing. And I think part of the reason is that, you know, sort of tech is still seen as something that's out there and that's not embedded in and shouldn't be embedded in learning. And it's an add-on and we don't really know what to do with this add-on and it's a piece of hardware and infrastructure and, you know, the school technician deals with it. No, that's not what technology and learning should be about. Technology should augment and enable that learning and, and help teachers, you know, free up teachers to do teaching. Uh, which is what they want to do, and, 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 you know, help learners construct their learning. It isn't quite happening because also schools don't necessarily really understand how to build a strategy around what technology makes sense in that learning process for their school, which may be different from another school. Um, so that, I think, is a, is a big problem, and I think AI could easily go the same way because it's like, oh, we have to have AI. Um, what do you want? You know, why do you want it for? What, what's the outcome that you're seeking? Um, you know, I got a newsletter the other day of a school in America that just realized they had 12,000 apps floating around at school and nobody even knew about them. But teachers had just been, oh, we have to have the app for this and we have to have an app for that. And so it's kind of random. Um, and of course, apps often being quite transient, uh, they may be, you know, they were used like a couple of times by a couple of people and that was it. No benefit to the, to the learner, to the teacher, to the school whatsoever. No benefit to education. So that's kind of where I'm sitting on this AI fence, is that actually, you know, we, we have an opportunity to really integrate AI in schools for, for the good, uh, for the better, to also support, you know, we live in a world of pull now, not a world of push. People can go and find things. You go and find things because you're curious. You want to be curious as a learner. You want to kind of self-motivate as a learner because that's when you do the best learning. And that's, I think, where AI, you know, is, is potentially really, really beneficial. Not on the kind of predictive side, but helping people pull uh, their, their learning. So that, that's where I'm very excited about it. And that's, I think, where we should kind of also focus on this. And we mustn't forget that, you know, we live in a world of chaos, and you guys, the chaos is only going to get bigger. You know, I'm old, you're young, so your chaos is just going to get bigger. If you don't have any concept of AI when you go through learning and through school, you're going to really be struggling with what's going to hit you after. So I would, I would advocate to have AI, you know, embedded um, in, in the learning and the teaching process, exactly for the reason that I think school has been dehumanized now with, you know, and it's a shame that we have to maybe resort to AI to humanize it again, but, you know, I believe that AI can definitely help in that humanization. Having said that, I think there are ethical concerns that we should address, but we should also address in a sensible way, not in kind of like, oh, this is all very bad and I'm panicked. Um, it has to be looked at in a more strategic kind of um, you know, consideration, and I'm sure Jen will kind of um, help us with that one. Um, and I, I also think that, you know, the potential for policymakers to use AI to their benefit, because ultimately education is politics, is, is potentially quite, quite uh, big, and that's where I think it needs people 
like everybody in this room, to also inform those people to say what actually they want and need from learning and teaching. Great, thank you. Um, so, uh, what problems is, is AI, <coughs> what educational problems is AI trying to solve? And is the technology actually helping or not? Just as an aside, um, MMMC Ventures, MMC Ventures VC investor did a report, a survey of two, almost 3,000 companies and found that 40% of tech companies describing themselves as AI startups had no evidence of any AI or machine learning. So, you know, it's clearly it's a thing that people want to say they're doing. Um, Jen. So people want evidence of the things that they say they're doing. So what are they doing? Some of what Defend Digital Me does in schools, um, data protection and data privacy today, is to look at exactly what schools are doing. And we have been exploring the landscape of education and data for the last three years in detail. So let's take a look at some of the concrete examples of how AI is being used and not theory. One of the greatest uses of AI at the moment in schools is classroom management software, otherwise known as safeguarding in schools. From the advertising marketing materials of one of the leading UK companies at the moment, a case study, for the sake of why I think this is a risk, I will not name the school, although the case study does. College has relied on this product to protect users for the last six years mental health and safeguarding officer can recall one of the first serious incidents the service using AI detected. A female student had been writing an emotionally charged letter to her mum using Microsoft Word offline in which she'd been revealed she'd been raped. Despite the, advice being, the device being used offline, we picked it up and alerted the school care team who were able to quickly intervene. Is it right that a company can monitor a child's use of a product and know something deeply intimate about them before the child's parents or share it with a school or with people that they have not themselves chosen to do so? 17-year-old girl. We're talking about ethics and AI. Let's start with that case study. Another. Academies Enterprise Trust is using AS tracking. This was uh, reported by Sky recently. A mental health uh, survey tool. Testing pupils' mental health, apparently using AI. 50,000 children in the UK at 150 schools. They do two tests a year. Spot checks at one moment in time. How did you feel this morning? Did you feel the same yesterday morning? I doubt you'll feel the same at the end of the day. This survey claims to identify a child's mental health status having on the basis of one survey in one day. The strengths of AI, as the previous speakers have spoken about, is often in the use of mass data, of pattern identification, of trying to identify is your behavior and your characteristics, even the way that you type on the keyboard, or your eye contact with the screen, the same as the other thousands or millions of people that we have identified look like you. Can it pick up your mental health based on one spot in time? Defend Digital Media campaigns for safe, fair and transparent use of data in education. We want people to ask the right questions. There's no question of throwing the baby, the bathwater, the bath out 
Should we be using AI or not? We have AI. The question is sometimes, should it be using us? And if so, how? Humans in the data often become reduced. We become reduced to numbers. We re become reduced to, here's what you bought earlier. Would you like to buy another one? Do you have the same postcode as this person with these characteristics? Therefore, we'll not offer you this pricing on your online purchase. We'll not offer you this insurance. We'll not offer you this job interview because people that looked like you were not somebody that we wanted to hire for whatever questions our bias may have had. Go downstairs today if you get the chance. There's a superb exhibition on here, Trevor Paglan, Trevor Paglan, who's done an exhibition in the curve from Apple to Anomaly. He's mapped out over 35,000 photographs that were used in ImageNet, a giant online database used to teach AI to recognize the world as a set of images. What does your world look like in your thoughts, in your mind? Do those images match what somebody else's perception of the world is? Are we teaching AI the way our world should be? And are we teaching our children how the world should treat them? We think it's vital that we ask the right questions to make sure that we are treating our children fairly, without discrimination, without bias. And that exhibition highlights beautifully the core sort of questions we have to be asking about what kinds of images represent our world. To whom? And who makes the decision? Who decides? So one of the most important things we think is not being asked in education today about AI companies, or that, for that matter, a mass of the thousands of companies and apps that Carla, Carla um, talked about in schools is who makes the decisions of what is allowed to be in a school and why? Because as soon as you connect a child's school record at scale, coming out of school information management systems, shipping thousands of pieces of data off to a, off to a company, and in addition, maybe using an AI that captures their behaviors every two seconds, you are giving a company a great deal of knowledge, a great deal of information that they can choose to use however they have set out in their terms and conditions. That might be 25, 27, hundreds of pages long with addendums. And these are real examples, but I won't name the companies because one of their founders claimed that because we started to ask questions of a company, we were verging into the bounds of defamation. Now, you should be asking these questions. Go to your schools, if you're in schools and colleges, make a request of the people that are in charge of, of procurement and ask them, which apps are using my data? What data have they got? What are the terms and conditions? How long will they keep it for? How do I know when it's been deleted? Or will one day you find that it's been passed on to your employment screening tool as much of our data is already shared out today? Or has it been linked to data brokers' data from Experian and other collecting hundreds of pieces of information, linking it with your record and categorizing you into hundreds of thousands of small pieces of data that people use to make decisions about you and what you are allowed to buy, allowed to interact with, allowed to learn every day. So we talk a lot about what we could do. We must talk a little bit more about what we should do. 
We need to talk about security, we need to talk about effects of infrastructure and cost on schools, and we need to talk very much about how education is part of the economy and the forgotten third of children that come out of school with no qualifications, with very little going for them in terms of what the system recognises they have achieved at school. So what can we do, what should we do, needs to be debated today and beyond. Lovely, thank you. Um, and I'm really pleased you brought at that point about the difference between what is um, and what could be or what should be. Um, you know, maybe computers are quite good at describing what is, but are they any good at all at describing what should be? I doubt it, but maybe you'll disagree. Gareth, take us to the bridge. <laughs> Thank you, Harley. <clears throat> um, okay, so uh, I'm going to frame my opening remarks in terms of the Turing question, which um, I believe Donald referred to earlier. Um, and what each of the two alternative answers to that question might mean for education. So the Turing question, if you're not aware, um, was the one that uh, wartime boffin and father of information theory, Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> uh, otherwise known as Alan Turing, of course, um, opened his seminal 1950 paper, Computing Machines as Intelligence. The question was, can machines think? And in that paper, Turing quickly establishes that the meanings of machine and think are too philosophically deep, and so he modifies his approach to hypothesizing the possibility of what he calls the imitation game, hence the name of the film. Um, and in the imitation game, interactions are created between a human player and a machine such that the human can't tell that they're playing against a machine. That's the hypothesis. Um, and in that sense, if the human can't detect they're playing against the machine, the machine wins in that sense. Um, 30 years later, the philosopher John Searle, in 1980, went uh, back to those difficult philosophical roots of the Turing question um, in his paper, Minds, Brains and Programs. And he reposes that essential question as... Can machines be created with minds uh, as that of humans? Can you create a machine with a, a, a mind uh, like a human? And in a thought experiment that he calls the Chinese room, he boils the question down further to whether a machine can understand a language, um, a situation that he determines strong AI, or whether the machine merely simulates understanding and he determines that weak AI. Now his conclusion is crucial to this whole debate, particularly as it relates to education. Searle agrees, yes, machines uh, of sufficient complexity could be devised to pass the Turing test, in other words, a human not being able to tell they're interacting with a machine, um, by manipulating symbols. A machine can do that. And indeed, Joseph uh, Weizenbaum's ELISA project had appeared to do that already in 1966. Um, however, says Searle, such machines would not need to understand the symbols that they're manipulating to give the illusion of understanding. 
and that would be enough to pass the Turing test. In other words, Searle accepts the possibility of weak AI um, and doesn't limit the amount of intelligence a machine might have, but he concludes that computers, as opposed to machines, running software will not be able to achieve strong AI. And that conclusion and the implications of it rent the AI world uh, asunder. And that AI world has been stuck on the horns of that dilemma ever since. So in the subsequent period, the main source of funding for AI, which was the US Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, um, they'd already been scaling back their support of AI um, and for, for the previous sort of five, six years in the 70s. Um, and they took up an aggressively instrumentalized policy after Searle's paper. Um, funding was only going to be now available for expert systems. In other words, applications with clearly defined command and control objectives and driven by the needs of specific customers, military in the first instance and then wider commercial. And this was narrowly focused <coughs> software engineering and processing. Okay? It was a complete departure from the earlier blue sky attempts to tackle broader questions of cognition and psychology, which were themselves a contribution to that long philosophical discourse going back to Cartesian dualism, mind and matter, and uh, Leibnizian mechanism, mind and machine. It's part of that long story. So by the time Deep Blue, who you may have heard of, uh, the, the computer famously beats Kasparov uh, at chess in 1997, what was being called um, AI, but really wasn't AI, um, had become a market worth billions, and then the likes of Alexa and Siri follow on from that. So when we inquire into the role of AI in schools, I would suggest that we need to go back to Searle's analysis, actually, much overlooked for 40 years now, into the difference between understanding and the simulation of understanding in order to pass some kind of test or win some kind of game. The difference between them, according to Searle, is intentionality. That's the idea that human uh, mental states are always directed at something. Without this, we merely have algorithms. We have sets of rules to be followed to solve a problem. So what we mistake AI for today is machine learning. Those two terms are used uh, synonymously today, but I think they're different. Okay, so by machine learning, what I mean is the ability for machines to take human-devised algorithms and then autonomously revise them, the machine revises them, to a very highly sophisticated degree by running them through millions of iterations. And it can do that because of processing speed developments, and it can do that because of the big data that um, Jen's just been talking about, and the widespread use of software across all sections of society. So there's lots of different fields to get this data from. That's not human learning. Indications of artificial intelligence would, I suggest, lay in a machine that can manipulate anagrams, not by simply creating random arrangements of a set of letters, uh, but in the way that you do when you try and complete a crossword. Uh, it would be a machine that could translate, in Wittgenstein's term, the word game. Think of all the different meanings that game has. A machine that could understand the different inflections of that meaning. It could recognise a photograph of your mother. Think about that one. 
Notice the intentionality inherent in all of those circumstances. As Douglas Hofstadter, who's one of the great pioneers of AI, made clear in a recent article in The Atlantic, Google Translate is all about bypassing or circumventing the act of understanding language. To conclude, if strong AI, such as the examples I've just mentioned, is possible, then it is currently still the labour of ages to do the simplest human tasks like recognising your mother. But we're not just nowhere near that, we're presently moving in the opposite direction. We're in an era of pseudo or even fake AI in some situations. Machine learning dressed up, frankly, to make a buck. How much farther off then would be the task of machines that could actually educate? And is such a goal even attainable anyway? In 1890, William James, a psychologist, deemed the physical nature of consciousness to be the most mysterious thing in the world. What is it, actually, seriously, what is it that we do when we educate? How do we learn? I fear that in accepting the quick fix of AI, we change not the computers, but ourselves. Algorithmic thinking increasingly becomes our preferred mode of thought. We ourselves become scripted, robotic, our intellects narrowed, to command and control tasks, and who ends up imitating who? Does the machine win the game? <laughs> Let's thank our speakers for their introductions. <laughs> so, plenty to get um, our teeth into there. We've got AI as uh, idiot savant, idiot savant. We've got it's a reflection of ourselves. Is it using us or are we using it? And is it about bypassing understanding and a quick fix to, uh, to attempt to uh, simulate education? So that's a few things to get your teeth into. Um, just to say, uh, we're going to take some points from the audience. Uh, these can be questions, but they don't have to be. They could be thoughts, comments, objections, half-formed ideas, which you want to have out with us. Um, but uh, be thinking of, of, of those. And uh, just to sort of throw out a few more examples of, um, of uh, AI that's actually being used in education uh, uh, at the moment. Um, in, in my research, these are some of the ones I came across. So Pearson, uh, auto-marking 35 million student essays each year, year using 100 criteria. EduLi, the assessment tool uh, being piloted in universities in Italy to develop and assess employability skills such as critical thinking and problem solving. Um, CRAM 101 uses AOI to break down textbook content into digestible smart study guides. Class charts to helps teachers organise uh, seating plans and deal with problems pupils. Uh, presentation translator, free plugin for PowerPoint, creates subtitles in real time for what the teacher is saying. Um, Oya Labs analyzes behavior of babies as they develop uh, based on their movement and sound. Uh, there's been some failed attempts to, um, dis to spot the sounds of school shootings in the US. Um, and uh, closer to home, um, Ofsted are now using uh, machine learning to identify which schools should be prioritised for, for inspections. There's just a few things out there. There's lots more, I'm sure. So let's have some hands up, people who would like to say something. This gentleman down here. Now, if you just hold, uh, we've got uh, a gentleman here with the mic. Um, 
Thank you. Hi, so I have a sort of a question about how you would ensure that AI, obviously it's being integrated into the school system right now, but how would you further incorporate it in a way that is genuinely safe and helpful? Like, it seems like a pretty daunting issue if you ask me, because there's so many ways in which you could answer that question. How can we trust, say, our governments to ensure it's used in a safe and sustainable way for our schools? Thank you. The gentleman behind there, and then the one next to him. Yeah, um, uh, a few years ago at the school I work at, um, the English department used to have this uh, short story that they read with some students by Ian Forster called The Machine Stops. Um, uh, a brilliant piece of writing in which the characters in this story, they all live underground in little pods and they spend their whole day getting drip-fed information in little 10, 15-minute videos and things. It's, he, Ian Forster basically saw YouTube in the 1920s, I think is the, the gist of it. Um, we stopped teaching it because ironically it was too difficult for the students, but it was a brilliant short story. Um, and, and, and during this, the, as the title suggests, this whole computer system just stops and these individuals, these characters, have to actually communicate properly for the first time. And Now, I'm sure that the kind of technology we're talking about probably won't ever stop, but I'm just wondering if it did, what would be left of the learner, what's left of humanity? What, if you're just standing in a room with nothing else as a human being, what do you actually know when all this stuff is just not there? So just hypothetically, if the machine stopped, what's left? Okay, thank you. Hi, um, I'm glad that things like Daniel Dennett and John Searle were raised, and I'm sort of thinking about it in the context of my subject. I've been teaching for 11 years. I teach science, and I often have um, a difficulty with the compartmentalization that students do, because I'm, I'm interested in what, what is learning in, in relation to Gareth's question about what is it that we do when we educate? What is it that we do when we learn? And I know that the maths department in my school are big on the use of ed tech. They bought in loads and loads of programs, so my school is a publicly funded comprehensive school. Those public funds are going out to companies who are looking to make money. They have a, a bottom line they have to deliver to the shareholders and so on. And by the criteria that Donald mentioned, things like, you know, in the maths department they're saying, oh, they've got this great attainment in a given topic. So it could be the application of a particular equation, which is essentially algorithmic if you follow the equation. But what happens when they come into my classroom and they attempt to apply those mathematical skills to a scientific example is they often cannot do it. Now the skill fundamentally is the same. I, we use equations all the time in science, obviously. It's you know, part of the grammar of science. But it's almost like they think they're doing something different when they are not. Mm -hmm. And I think it is related to that notion of competence without comprehension. But by the measures of attainment that are being used in mathematics, they may have been successful on a given day. And I think that relates back to what Carla was saying about how, how is it used you do these things, the, uh, the, the, the piece of technology, and you can argue, I'm sure you would say that probably isn't really artificial intelligence, but it's certainly how ed tech is being used as I see it. Mm. And it'll say, no, you didn't get this right. Go back and do it again. Eventually you might get the desired outcome and the piece of technology tells you that you've been successful. But when they come into my classroom, I can tell you they are not successful. They cannot rearrange an equation because they fundamentally, if you treat it just like it's an algorithm, you, you have not grasped the concept of the phenomena that algorithm represents. So if we take any of Newton's equations or any, any equation at all in, in science, it's not just a 
Blunt algorithm, it's representing a phenomena, which is something that is part of the natural world. And you also have to grasp that. So although you can demonstrate and the technology may identify that you've been successful, what have you been successful at? I would deem that you have not been successful. You've demonstrated competence, but not comprehension. So it's that, it's that distinction is quite useful. Thanks. You just reminded me of the uh, Pressy te uh, testing <coughs> machine. I don't know if people have heard of that, but it was invented in the 1920s. Um, by Sidney L. Presley at, Presley at uh, Ohio State Uni. And this was a machine that would feed multi-choice questions to, to people. It's a really early version of AI, I guess. Um, but, and and the, the, the sort of what they thought was the radical um, innovation they made was they wouldn't let the pupil go on and, to the next question until they got the first one right. So the theory being, if they keep trying it, they get it right. Oh, they've now learnt it. But had they really learnt it? Uh, and also at the time there was lots of excitement about this changing teachers' lives radically and freeing them up to do all kinds of stuff. So, you know, it, um, anything we can learn from that. Any other hands just before we go back to the panel? A gentleman there? I, I teach civil engineering at university level now, but I've also taught maths and English and all sorts of different levels. So this sort of comes in in, in, in diff different ways in, in the different teaching that I've done. I mean, it feels it feels as if there, there there are two or three different conversations going on here and 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 in the audience. So I think you know from the point of view of as someone who who teaches and teaches a subject that's quite a technical subject, using technology makes a lot of sense. I, I actually I agree. I don't think it's actually really got any intelligence at all. But using technology to sort of feed questions to students and you know having just as another tool. I think there's no problem with the the idea that you could then replace the teacher is, is is something quite different. But in fact, I think there is the potential to free up a lot of time. You know, you know, you can you can have 50 questions that can keep randomising the numbers and so on, and that people can try stuff in their own time, and that gives you time to actually talk about something more creative about applying this to a design problem or something, rather than just turning the handle. I mean, I know when I went to university. You know, we didn't have any of this stuff. Uh, uh, but I did loads of my learning from a bloody textbook, um, you know, which, which, is, which is a terribly static thing. It's, it sort of is a bit of technology, but it's a much more static, um, turgid one than, than some of the things that, that we can do now. So I think to fetishize it and think that it's different from a textbook can, can be, be a mistake. I think when you try and actually make all the learning through through machines then 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 you're in trouble because you're actually going to miss all, all of those creative parts of, of of the the learning and and teaching experience i mean you know as a teacher you're always reinventing what you teach every time you're in front of people because you get a different response um i don't think any ai that exists currently anyway would be capable of doing any of that sort of stuff um that that was one one side of it. There's there, there's all these, yeah. I'll leave it. But okay. but there but there are two or three other discussions going on at the same time. So but I'll engage with one at a that time. That does tend it's to happen at the battle of ideas. We'll come back out to yourself in a second if that's all right. We're just going to go around the panel and then we'll come out for hopefully a couple more rounds. Um, so we'll go in the same order we spoke before. If you have got a couple of minutes to pick up on either something okay. one of the other panelists has said or something the audience has said. Well, first of all, the question on regulation. You know, how do we how do we manage this? Technology is always ahead of the sociology and culture. It just, and it always will be. It's never going to catch up. Unfortunately, we are sort of shooting away ahead. However, the, 
the, the solution here is just normal laws and regulation. You know, this is what Daniel Dennett says, a lot of the smarter people here uh, say, let's not get too carried away by over-regulating and creating uh, premature laws. You get loads of that in the EU, which is a very top-down law-driven organisation. Uh, they want to regulate everything, which is why we have no major tech companies in Europe. They're all either Chinese or uh, uh, American. And if we just become the regulator, I think that's a sad future for AI in Europe. And the, the de uh, let me give you a concrete example of this. There's a famous little ethics and AI group who wanted all algorithms in every university to be transparent. In other words, you had to absolutely know how they worked. And when it was pointed out to them that you would actually have to ban Google Scholar, they quickly, of course, realized how ludicrous this idea was. The second idea was that all data should be available to all students. Oh, fine, give them the data. It's absolutely meaningless to give data, a bunch of data to anybody without visualizing it and so on. And it's actually, in some cases, against the law because it can be used for malevolent purposes. I think this idea, you know, the, the teaching thing there, I think the great advances aren't, I think you're absolutely spot on. The, the advances in the AI aren't really replacing teacher or those higher order skills that the teachers do. But this stuff frees you up to do that good stuff. Let me give you a trivial example. That's my son here. I know that he spent 20 minutes every day in a class in his comprehensive school while teachers took the register and took his name and wrote it down on a piece of paper. It's absolutely ludicrous and stupid. Absolutely ludicrous. Imagine that over four, five, six years of schooling. Whereas in China, right now, the kids come in, face recognition, boom, it's done in a microsecond. Surely that's a sensible use. In other words, it's a dumb system. It doesn't have any comprehension, in it, but it does identify you as a student, saving huge amounts of time for teachers to, to do good work. On maths, which I've taught before, simple things like photo maths, you know, which every kid has, hardly any teacher knows about, maths teachers do, which simply, you, you, show the, you show your mobile to the maths problem, you look at it, and it gives you the answer. How cool is that if you're 13 and you've got your maths homework? You don't actually have to think about maths, but actually, it shows you all the steps between the question and the problem. And it doesn't solve the mathematical, you know, there's a lot of sophisticated stuff in teaching that goes on, but that's half the battle. If, like me, you had parents who didn't know any maths and you got stuck, before the internet, I was stuck. That was it. Now we have tools that I think free up the pedagogy. Interesting thing about if the machines stop, Daniel Dennett wrote a really brilliant essay on this because there's a real danger in this putting too much faith in tech, not AI problem, technology as a whole. If this damn internet crashes, we're in real deep shit. <laughs> and I'm not too sure that much attention uh, really ha has been given to that, uh, uh, that problem. Good question. Okay. Um, and you mentioned transparency. I don't know if people picked up, um, it's not education, but pr President Macron, I think, announced this week that um, all algorithms um, used in decision-making by the French government will be made um, public. Um, how that will work, I'm not sure. Carla. Okay, um, one of the things I didn't get around to when you know, I was talking earlier on <coughs> was um, also in terms of the, the machine in the classroom and in terms of you know, your argument about how these kids learn and what they know and what they don't know, is that learning is a very messy process. You know, it's incredibly messy. And messiness is not what certainly currently AI is very good at in terms of, you know, uh, it can do fairly compartmentalized stuff, but bring it all together in this kind of mess that is different for every single student is going to be a big problem for AI. And that's, 
I'm with Donald and that, you know, let the AI kind of do the dumb stuff, let the teachers do the real, you know, messy stuff with the, with the students. And I think that is definitely a scenario where we should go to. I, I mean, I'm also with Jen on, on sort of, you know, where, where and I've, I've been part of, of some ethical discussions around this. And, and, you know, that whole thing about the prediction of, you know, based on data, that really, I find horrendous and actually would make learning very deterministic as well. Mm. Um, and, you know, learning is deterministic now, but if AI and, you know, with adaptive systems that actually do go beyond the rule-based stuff, um, you know, and, and, and the sort of fully-fledged machine learning works only with prediction and sort of telling you what to do next, and, and because you did there, you're going to, this there, you're going to be doing that over there, I think that would be a really horrible uh, way to kind of uh, deal with learning. And to your point about when the machine stops, then you know what's, what's left, um, because teachers won't know what to do anymore either. Um, so that's definitely something that we should, we should, um, as educators and people involved in education, really stand up to and and, and try to influence um, and and sort of make sure that humans do the, the clever stuff and actually teach the kids to do the clever stuff and not sort of kind of just focus on measuring binary data and for the sake of targets of or of study inspections because that's not helping anyone and it won't help these kids in their future at all. Thank there, was you. A, there was a really dumb by back in Catalopia. There's a really dumb thing happened in our government recently where we had a so called experts turning up to a select committee with a robot. <laughs> a robot teacher. It was the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Last there was a massive 5,000 edu educational conference in Las Vegas last year, and the keynote was Sophie the robot, which the head of AI at Facebook calls a crap chatbot and a piece of plastic. But you know this robot teacher stuff? It's way out of control. It's complete nonsense. But this is what happens when populism sort of infects the ethical debate. And there's no way a robot's going to replace you with you as a teacher. Not in my lifetime or anybody's lifetime. We're just freeing you up to teach. Okay. Yeah, it's worth Pepper the Robot. Take a look online. You can see it in action. Uh, Jen. <laughs> what happens if the text appears? So London Grid for Learning, one of the networks enabling infrastructure and looking after infrastructure, did a survey recently, together with the National Cybersecurity um, Centre, part of GCHQ. They found that 97% of schools thought that losing access to network would cause serious disruption, but only 45% had included core IT services in their risk register, and less than a third felt prepared for a cybersecurity attack. This is a fundamental flaw we have right now in the education system. WannaCry hit the NHS in 2017, cancelled 19,000 appointments in a day. So we need for things like the ethical debate to become part of the practical debate around what happens when the tech literally disappears, when it goes down. We've got enough problems with whiteboards, we've got enough problems with terrible broadband connection. Um, what would be left is the children's rights to be heard, the children's rights to an education, the children's rights to have fair and um, equal dis, uh, treatment in the classroom and above all a child's curiosity and I hope the thing that teachers instill in my children above all is the love of learning and those things don't disappear if you take away the tech with or without the question is how can we co-collaborate and do them well so to come to your question how do we do it I think 
the, the question of regulation and legislation is often seen as a, oh, you can't regulate because it inhibits innovation, it inhibits technological, technological advance. If that's the case, you're doing it wrong. Okay? Let's do it right with proper regulation because at the moment, schools do not have clarity or consistency or even confidence in buying the right ed tech that works, that is pedagogically proven, that actually advances learning and that is safe and that does not exploit people. So I believe, and we are campaigning for right now, to have a good way forward in ed tech in schools, we actually do need legislation that the UK would benefit from an ed, educational rights and privacy act, which would enshrine the ability to use tech well. It would give people the way of doing it that they understand consistently and they would get it right. And I think it would add to what Anne Longfield said in 2017, we are failing at the moment as adults to give our children agency to be in control of their own lives. I think that is a fundamental flaw, whether it's the ed tech taking it away and being deterministic about who, what you'll learn next, or whether it's us as educators, parents, just as society telling children, go to class, zero tolerance, if you misbehave, if class charts tells you you've got a, a red mark today, we're giving you two bongs and out you go. That's not the way to treat a child. We need to bring back the rights of the child, prioritise them within a rights-respecting framework of governance. Thank you. And uh, Gareth? Oh, Jen, 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 Jen. <laughs> I liked what you said to start with, and now I really don't. Um, <laughs> right, so there's so much to deal with, and I, I, I won't go on and on. Famously, famous last words. Um, first of all, uh, What's more dangerous in schools, the obsession with, with tech, thinking that it's something to do with clever intelligence when it isn't, uh, or the fear around risk and safety? I think actually, Jen, that the fear around risk and safety is a much more serious threat to education than AI. Um, this, this is a sort of debate about AI, so we can't go too much into this. but. Uh, when you, the, more, the more you talk about um, keeping children safe, the more I get um, worried about that because I think you give the data an autonomy it doesn't have. I think that kind of language is scared of data as if it's some supernatural force that uh, can wreak havoc if you just kind of let it out there. Um, and I think that's quite anti-modern. So in, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm very pro-technology. I just wish you'd stop calling it artificial intelligence because I think that leads us to think about intelligence in a machine-like way. That's the problem with it. But I'm not against technology um, at all, but I'm about to lay into Donald in a minute, so um, maybe it'll come across <laughs> that way. Um, yeah, okay, let me just do that now then. Uh, face, all right, face recognition. You could have a lovely robot or whatever it is that recognises everybody's face, has done the register in, in two minutes, and then we can get on with the teaching, right? Any teacher in the world will tell you that the, I mean, if you're spending 20 minutes taking your register, you're doing it wrong. I think everyone gets that. But that time that you, the human being, and more important, you, the teacher, are recognising faces, there's a whole load of transaction going on there. You're looking at how your subject's going down among the people you're trying to transmit it to. And you can't always do that when you're saying, 
Watson Newton's three laws. You know, um, sometimes you need to be doing that when you're judging how they're coming in the room and the kind of things they're talking about. And oh, by the way, I saw the programme last night, sir, on TV about X, Y, Z, whatever. Okay, that is what I mean by facial recognition. Right? Machines don't do that and they never will be able to do that. They do not understand. That's my point about recognising the face of your mother. A, a computer is very good now at uh, you know, looking at my mum's face and she can unlock her phone or whatever. Uh, but that's not really what we're talking about a human does when they recognise um, uh, a face. I'll probably stop there because yeah. I'll be gone forever. Okay, it's, it's, so worth, it's worth noting Sweden has just fined a school for using facial recognition in breach of GDPR and France has just banned it. So it is deeply invasive and it's recognised as it's terribly fat right now. Over 90% of identifications used in the, in the Met Police, for example, using it right now, fail. It's not that it has a 90% success rate, it has a 3% success rate. You don't like coming through Gatwick and putting well. your passport in? You want to hold, hold on. The border guard? So we can, see, we can see we've got some uh, differences opening up on the panel here. Uh, but we're going to come back out to you. Come back, come back out to you first. Now I saw a couple of hands would be great. I can see, dare I say, it, some young people in the audience. If you if you've been at school recently, if you've encountered any of this stuff, it'd be or, or if it'd be interesting to know what you've thought about it or about the prospect of it. Uh, likewise, any teachers in the audience, what what you make of all this? But uh, firstly, the chap with the blonde hair. I'm jealous of him because I used to have that. Over to you, sir. Blonde hair. Um, and then we'll come forward. Um, in the short term, I'm inclined to agree with the comments about technology as a textbook-like resource, and that's how I've seen it used to great effect. Um, and I definitely agree in the short term, that's how it should be used. I do have concerns over whether funding cuts and policy managers will allow technology to bring humanity back into schools, or if rather they'll see it as a way of cutting costs, of cutting teacher numbers, of reducing contact hours. And that's a serious concern I have. I think we should consider the state of the economy and policy before we start to really open our arms to that. And my other point, Gaff, I'm interested in your comments on how machines will never think. And I fully appreciate that, but um, as we're moving into the realms of um, neural network-based stuff, models of brains, digital models, concurrent, um, convolutional recurrent networks, which can model brains to quite a significant degree, and if we combine that with evolutionary techniques, do you think in the long term it might be possible to build machines that are capable, maybe not of thinking, but of understanding individual learners on an individual basis to a significant degree, and do you think um, maybe in two generations' time, that might be able to revolutionise learning if we could build systems that could understand how an individual student could learn and give human teachers insights into what that could be used for. Thanks for that. And, and on the, um, if, if you could hand the microphone to this gentleman here um, with the spectacles, in fact, there's a few of them there, the, this gentleman, yeah, um, and just hold for a second. But the, on the economy, on the funding point, one of the things I've seen again and again while preparing for this session is people saying, we've got to, we're not spending enough on AI, we need to be spending more. Apparently, uh, R&D funding, public R&D funding last, uh, was £1 million over the last three years as opposed in, in education, as opposed to £50 million in healthcare. Um, but the question you might all want to think about is, is why? 
uh, who, who is our, who's pushing this, who's demanding it, why do we need to do it? But anyway, uh, to you, sir. Wonderful session so far, thank you. I was prompted by the speaker's comment about what is the problem that we're trying to solve. And I think there's a case that the greatest ethical challenge in education today is a term that no one's raised yet, which is student debt. So the debt in the US is now 1.3 trillion. In the UK, I think it's about 150 billion or so, and increasing at twice the rate of inflation. We're creating an entire generation of debt slaves that is depriving young people from going into more socially rewarding careers. And the main factors behind the escalation costs is not teacher salaries, it's not facilities, it's administration, it's back office. And I sometimes find that the resistance to AI and focusing on the need to preserve humanity is distracting us from the actual ethical issue uh, created around the explosion in student debt and the efficiencies that we could achieve if we were to streamline much of that back office that is causing this escalation in, uh, in costs. So if the speakers have any comments on how this relates to not AI in pedagogy, which is I think what m most of the focus has been on, but AI in the educational industry as such, with a particular focus on the uh, spiraling of costs. Thank you. Um, now, there's a gentleman directly in front, but I see your hand, so I'll keep try and keep track. Uh, I'll come back to you all in a minute. Uh, after you, sir. Uh, so I come from uh, a pilot in India where uh, we tried something very similar. We ran a face recognition system for a year and found that uh, almost one teacher's worth of effort was able to be saved uh, in a school of about 800 students. And there were significant benefits uh, overall. But I completely recognize your point as in terms of how uh, over the long run there could be harm. So where, at what stage do we, how long can we continue using AI or technologies like this before there is harm at some point? So how do we leverage AI meaningfully so that we cut off at some stage? Thank you. Uh, we have a lady here in the front. Uh, hands up again. Um. Um, I'm a science teacher. I work in the state school in Liverpool. Um, just a few observations, really. Um, last year, for the first time, we uh, really encouraged our lower ability and special needs kids to use um, a learning platform um, called Seneca. And um, we got actually really good results in the sense that nobody got um, an unclassified result for the first time ever in our school. Um, and we, found, we felt that that was because they'd been quite engaged uh, using the, the computers. Um, secondly, uh, in terms of funding, it's, we, uh, the computers we have are not great. They take about five minutes to sort of load up. So um, it, as with a lot of things, uh, Poorer students are going to be disadvantaged if sort of <coughs> lots of um, AI initiatives take off in schools and the government needs to fund education better generally but also put more money into being able to buy decent laptops and stuff. Uh, thirdly, I'd just like to defend class charts because um, this is something that I found really useful as a teacher. I must admit I've not thought of it in terms of the data, uh, what happens to... Uh, the children's characteristics. I, I would hope that is is not sort of put into the into the ether. Um, but ironically, I've actually found since I've uh, had class charts that I've actually been able to learn the names of the kids much quicker in my class 
Um, you said sort of doing a register, that's the time when you, you, you learn children's names. Um, when I teach sort of a class of 30 kids like once a week, it's very hard to know who they all are. Uh, who they all are. Um, it's a girls' school that I work in, so they're all girls, so they're all the same. Um, whereas when I have the class charts, because because I have their little pictures, I actually find I actually get to know who they are much quicker, ironically. Thank you very much. Now we have the lady in the purple scarf back there, and then the gentleman in the black T-shirt. Um, <coughs> Hello. Um, I have a very short question. Uh, how would you, the speakers, define human and humanity? And of, of course, I mean that more from a philosophical perspective than any other. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to just um, go back to um, Gareth's point about strong AI and Searle's ideas and give an example. Um, imagine a 14-year-old pupil struggling on a Friday afternoon with a bit of maths they don't understand. And they're sitting there getting more and more frustrated and more and more despondent. And they say, I can't do this. If, a t if either a teacher or a bit of AI is going to respond to that, it's got to work out what the barriers are to their understanding and what they don't understand exactly and why they don't understand it, and then work out a strategy for presenting it in a different way or setting them a different task that will, that will help them get past those barriers. I don't think anybody on the panel is suggesting a machine is anywhere near doing that, um, and if they are suggesting that, I would beg to differ. So I'm, I'm kind of relieved that really people are not saying that that's what this is about. It's, it's, it's not about replacing teachers. Um, the other point I was going to make very, very briefly, if I can, is I'm a governor at a large primary school that has a pretty large budget. Um, they've just had to replace a server, just one server, uh, because it, it died on them at short notice. It disrupted the school quite badly for a week, and it wiped out a large part of their capital spending budget for the year. If we are ever going to make anything decent out of IT, whether it's clever or dumb, we're going to need a lot more money in the system. <coughs> Okay, thanks. Now, I don't have an AI tool to help me pick speakers, but I did have Carla to point out that this lady has been waiting for a little while. So if you could speak next to the lady in the check shirt at the front. Thank you very much. Okay, so I just wanted to ask as much to the safety of children in schools. How, well, schools will always say that they have the cameras, they can keep the children, see how they are doing and stuff, but bullying and stuff still happens in schools so regularly. How could AI improve possibly catching bullying and even the awful case of sexual assault that can happen in schools, how AI can improve to, to reduce that and make it a more safe place for children. Okay, thank you. We've got three people who've spoken before, so the gentleman to your left. All yep. ah, right, okay, yep. we'll come back to you next then. So, um, so I had a question sort of leading on from the one back there. Is The discussion we've had has mainly been revolving around sort of artificial narrow intelligences. Um, and I believe a stat that shows nearly, I think over two-thirds of computer scientists believe we will achieve an artificial general intelligence inside the next 50 years, does that not raise some questions whether or not we can develop a true, arti uh, sorry, true AI machine that is genuinely capable, mathematically speaking, of everything a human is? And that presents so many problems, like, you know, the stop button solution, uh, sorry, problem, and, like, is, is it really not worth being at least cautious and very you know, aware of the risks that this does present to us? Is it not worth thinking about those? Stop button solution, meaning can you switch it off yeah, before can it you, causes can you, damage? Can, will it overpower us eventually? Okay, okay. Is that not a question that needs <laughs> answering? Okay. Uh, the lady here. Thank you. And then we'll come back to the, the panel and then we'll go out for another round. 
Um, I have a question about data, I suppose. And, um, you know, we use data as a bit of a source and as an interpretation, as a prediction. And in some ways it can be really humanizing, in other ways it can be really dehumanizing. But I wonder, you know, I feel like we're talking about it as a very static thing at the moment and there'll be more data and more evolution and more ways to know the unknowns. Um, so I'm just curious to gauge how you think that data will evolve and um, if there is a room for humility in opening up that data so that it can be more humanising in however you define it. Thank you. Okay, we've got loads now. Donald, which would you like to pick up on? Yeah, I think this is a really important question about cost and student debt, 1.2 trillion, massively rising in this country, unrecognised time bombs waiting to explode. And I illustrate this by example, I've been involved for the last five years now in ASU, Arizona State University, a massive 40,000 student university. And we started off doing adaptive learning to get the kids through the 101 courses like biology, psychology, anatomy, and so on, medical degrees. Hugely successful. In fact, so much so that we're doing a complete biology degree, which is online using that technology, which is AI-driven adaptive learning stuff. And that absolute, the goal there, absolutely, if you speak to the guy in charge out there, a really inspirational guy called Crow, is to reduce costs because it's unsustainable. And if we think that the current model is good, I go to Africa every year, there's hardly any chance of any African kids getting higher education because the cost is astronomic. And if we don't start reducing it now, we will see the civil unrest we see everywhere now. We'll see more Brexit, more Trump, because the higher education is actually creating inequalities in my view now. It's actually dumping 50% of the population on the street and spending all the money on middle-class people and their kids. Even the Labour Party believes in that. The Socialist Party in this country, their manifestos around student and students and their parents. I think an interesting question about harm, and, I, and the ethical debate, you very rarely, you hear, you hear a lot about Searle and so on, but you don't hear much about John Stuart Mill. And the really utilitarian, I really am a big believer in ethics and AI of taking it case by case and being very careful before you legislate things out of existence. And that's, that utilitarian approach to ethics is based on the harm principle. In other words, if it does harm, we stop it. And that's actually quite a good rule of thumb. And it's actually how most law gets created in our system in the House of Commons. And I think it's worthy of reflection, the harm principle uh, on that front as well. I think. I think this thing about maths is absolutely right. You know, actually, these systems are getting very good very quickly. Remember, it's still embryonic here, but I've seen some systems that really do what you've described there. I mean, they really do. If you get maths is an area, maths and foreign languages are two areas of catastrophic failure in English schools. You know, there are tens of thousands of kids learning French, Spanish, but hardly any of them will be able to order a cup of coffee in the country at the end of eight years. Because it's not the way you learn a language. You know, I have an Alexa in my room, it's, I've switched it to speak German, it's like having a German person in my house. That's how you learn a language, or you get a girlfriend, or you go there. I live in Britain, it's full of foreign students learning English. We have a stupid system for learning foreign languages. And maths, which is badly taught, difficult to teach, really difficult to teach and difficult to learn. And if we don't use technology to help, hard-pressed teachers just will fail those 30 kids in the school. You just cannot cognitively diagnose them simultaneously all the time. But the technology can help. Carla. Um, I'm actually quite interested in your question about you know, the bullying and the harm and how can AI can help. It's actually a rather difficult question because for me, do we actually need to rely on AI to help us with life? Because these are human flaws, you know, they're very, very human flaws. 
And are they, sorry, I should come a bit closer, sorry. Um, so are these human flaws something that, um, you know, if we rely on AI to, you know, to address this, um, are we passing the buck? Um, there might be situation where AI can help us detect it or prevent it, but I, I, I also think we have to be careful what we ask of AI. And, um, you know, it's a really difficult question. I, I, I actually don't really have the answer, um, but I was, I was really quite struck by it because these are kind of questions that, you know, what is a, an AI strategy going to give you to prevent bullying versus what is a teacher or a parent or a school leader or actually your co-pupils going to give you to prevent bullying? Because ultimately it's about picking this up yourself, guys, and doing something with it. And I, 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 I would be really worried if you were going to rely on AI to do, to do that for you. So that's kind of my answer to your question, but a really great question. Thank you. Uh, Jen? Let's follow on with that. So there's 15 companies in the UK today that say they claim to be able to do exactly that in schools. They run classroom monitoring software. It observes everything a child types on a keyboard. It observes all their incoming content, their social media, their um, web inter interactions with uh, chatbots, with um, any website. So this is web monitoring. So we're not talking about AI being able to detect a certain behavior. What we're actually talking about is surveillance. Can we, through surveillance, detect behaviors? Of course, the answer is yes. These software will flag, and they do, because they match the words that appear on a screen or that a child types against libraries. So they've got, say, 20,000 keywords backed up in their systems, which the companies choose together with the Internet Watch Foundation, with um, anti-terrorism organisations and various others. The children and the parents don't know what these words are, but if you type the wrong word in the wrong context, or somebody else does, it will flag in the system that you have a risk, or that you are potentially profiled as being, through the, the use of this software, a number of, uh, that what you've typed out in this context is a risk. But what we, well, I think Carla's absolutely right, is we're trying to, in effect, use very heavy-handed technological solutions for what are complex social and human problems. And we, we do that at great risk when we say we can only do that by breaching every single person's rights. It is a human right to privacy. Now, you can argue that in a school, a school teacher or a school staff have a duty to the children and under their care, but how far does that reach? Because some of these software reach into the home, as the example I gave today started off with. Some of these software are monitoring children's personal home devices, their own iPads or their iPhones that they've brought into school, bring your own device policies. So this is a, an overreach that's gone far without oversight in the UK. It needs to be reined back in. And we need real solutions for bullying and harm. And it's going to be a really interesting debate. And if it's something that interests you, look out for whatever government we have in the next foreseeable future, whatever that may be. And if you can predict it, you're doing better than the AI and the pollsters right now. Um, look out for the online harms white paper legislation. So there is legislation that was on the cards, whether it will now disappear, whether it will come back, what form, I don't know. 
also the age-appropriate code of design that the Information Commissioner's Office is designing. They're looking at how and what should be defined as online harm. Is it an infringement of your rights? Is it an infringement of commercial discrimination? Um, how, do we, how do we define those things? Okay, thank you. Gareth? No, don't do that, because um, the, 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 the moment you... you the, 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 the great thing that's come about by the digital revolution is uh, an explosion of human freedom. And the very worst thing you can do with that is to try and regulate that out of existence. And, uh, and just about every single time I see very well-intentioned, completely well-motivated moves to, to, to worry about the, the harm being done by these things, um, further down the road, that then gets warped or twisted and used for purposes that the originators of that legislation never ever intended and it always ends up in a reduction of human freedom and, and I don't think the answer to the uh, explosion of freedom that, that, that this technology undoubtedly gives us, um, I don't think the answer to that is to react with fear and that's my, my basic problem with this whole talk about harm. I want to try and bring a few things together. So many good things to talk about. I'm running out of time. Um, look, uh, tr trying to sort of bring these things together. Why should AI? Why should we turn to AI to solve bullying? You know, Carlos mentioned it's a, it's a human problem. Why would we? That's a good question. You know, but why would we turn to? Why on earth? You know, why why don't we pick up a shovel and say I'm going to sort out bullying with that? You know, that's just another tool, right? Um, but it's, it's an example of what the guy at the back with Harley's hair was talking about with neural networks. Um, because, and, and, and then it's come up so many times, and this is my point, that it's fascinating stuff, and I think there's a load of good stuff in it. But we start to look at computers and think that's what human beings are like. And we'll use human beings as our analogy, and it doesn't work. And before we know it, we're going to say there's a human problem called bullying. But if we think of ourselves as computers, we can sort it out um, that way. And in fact, I think this extends to the debt problem. And I don't want to be facile about this, but I speak to a lot of undergraduates, and they're all carrying around you know, far more debt than, than I would have ever have thought of of taking on at that kind of age. And my question to them is always, why have you done that? And then the reason is they are now part of a machine in which they have to go and get a degree. Yeah. They don't want one. They don't want one, they don't want the debt. And I'm not saying to anyone here, you don't actually want your degree, some will and some won't. But they're taking on debt because we have locked it into a system and it's that systemized thinking. Now I know that's a bit kind of airy-fairy and you're, you're raising a really serious practical problem but at the root of that problem is why do people feel that they need to do that? It's because we're becoming increasingly systematised in our patterns of thought. Sorry, okay. I knew Yeah, so we've just got time for a final comments, really short ones if you can. With, um, hands up, please, if you'd like to speak. We'll go for the ones who haven't <laughs> spoken already first and then see how far we go. So this lady here in the pink and then the gentleman uh, with the Battle of Ideas t-shirt. Hi, so, um, so I, I sort of sit on the dark side of this, this conversation because I, I run an ed tech firm uh, that's using uh, machine learning to uh, assist humans in improving youth mental health. And I, I had some questions, but we'll leave those. But um, I, I do think this regulation question is really interesting because I think it is, has the potential to be a driver for change. 
and it also has exactly the same potential to, to restrict freedom. Um, and so, so I think where we need to be very careful is to look at how it can be useful. And I think we can look at, if we look at the health tech industry, NICE have recently done some really useful work to start to define what safe, um, reliable, effective health tech looks like, uh, which is actually phenomenal guidance for people who are both creating tech and using it. And there does seem to be la something lacking in the ed tech world. Now, it doesn't have to be regulation, uh, but it, it can be guidance. So I, th okay. I think there's a bit of a compromise. Thank there. you. And then we're going to take the gentleman uh, with the microphone. That we're going to have to stop there, I'm afraid, because uh, we will have to allow time for very quick sum-ups from uh, the panel. Please fire away. Hi. Uh, my, uh, so I'm addressing Donald here. Uh, way back at the start, you mentioned um, humans can be really biased, and we all have our, we all have our biases. And in an algorithm that removes the bias, right? Um, what about what would you say about the argument that algorithms are written by humans, by a developer, by or decided by a uh, project lead or a business direction, uh, and that would introduce bias in the code or in the in the logic? Okay, thank you. So you've each got 30 seconds for your one killer point to round <laughs> us up, leave us uh, away. Start McDonald's. I never thought I'd say this, but I fully agree with Gareth on this notion of, <laughs> of you know, Jen's example here is actually the result of hysteria. This is schools who are so scared of tech and so scared of harming their children mm. that they hire tech to police other tech. And in actual fact, hardly any schools have this software. It actually is limited to the actual software, uh, the social media you use within the school, by law, interestingly. Uh, and so it's not the threat you may think that it is at, at all, that one. I think, coming back to the bias one, since that uh, addressed me directly on this, I think that the interesting thing here is that bias undoubtedly exists in the AI system, but it's a different sort of bias. Going back to Gareth and Dennett's point, it's not human bias, it's mathematical bias. And at least in AI systems, we can identify what that bias is. And then by pre-processing the data, sometimes post-processing the data, you can have, there are all sorts of techniques, counterfactuals, and there are ways balancing out the data. You can avoid the balance. You can't do that with humans. I ran a company, floated it in the stock market, had 200 people working for me. I will tell you right now that almost everybody we recruited was the subject of human bias. Cra you know, looking at the names of top of CVs, ditching them, crap interviews. Humans are so biased, it's beyond belief. I look forward to the day when recruitment is actually done mostly by machine so that everybody has a fair chance and your name doesn't determine, you know, it doesn't know I'm Scottish, it doesn't know the colour of my skin, even my sex. That's, that brings fairness in. So I, I, I put great faith in the technology in solving those problems. Great. Carla? Um, I'm, I'm going to go back to the bias thing. What, what I'm sort of really intrigued by is actually if, <coughs> if we did a competition um, across the whole world, including the Southern Hemisphere, including indigenous people, including those people that we never really talk about in these discussions, mm. ask them to come up with, with an algorithm to solve a particular you know, question. What would that look like? That's sort of my takeaway here. Okay, thank yep. you, Jen. I want to come back to the question, what will data evolve? How will it, how will it become different? So, um, the, the class chance example is a good example. Behavioural technology is something that is evolving all the time in schools, and to dispute the facts with um, 
Donald, thank you. 70% <laughs> of schools, secondary schools, use this software right now. We've done surveys through schools and, and some of the providers claim to do that as well. And in the education um, world, one of the leading providers that we mentioned at the start has presented to the Lord's Select Committee on the Internet and Children and talked about how they monitor in out of hours and at home and have their most hits in the summer holidays. But the most important thing is, what will it mean for you as an individual how the data will evolve and how these two systems are being used? Don't look at it from the technology point of view. Look at it, how does it matter for a child? And the key thing I think that we will see change is that regulation of data is recognizing that data is actually a toxic asset. To have too much does harm. And you can reduce that harm through the principle of data minimization, which is legislatively required. <coughs> data, um, the, the high level ethics group um, on AI of over 50 organizations from the EU in April brought out policy recommendations saying that children should be afforded a clean slate. When they leave education, they should be afforded a clean slate to be able to ensure they move into adulthood free from their history, from the, the biases and discrimination that may have built up over time. That's what we would like to see. That's where I think the direction of travel will be even with the growth of personalization, the growth of technology, but my faith still lies in humans in getting those decisions and that problem solving right. Brilliant, thank you. Gareth. Uh, and Jen and I agree at the end, that's nice, isn't it? Um, <laughs> machine learning, machine learning is good mostly. Don't look at it through the lens of harm. That's not gonna take you to a good place. Definitely stop calling it AI. It's not um, because machines are not models of humanity. That's not going to take you anywhere. Weizenbaum, uh, the creator of that ELISA program in 1972 said, the question is not does a computer understand the essence of man, but does man understand the essence of man? And if you want a poetic look at this, go and check out the poem, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. It's worth checking out. I just want to finish with a quote I liked from Mark Pesky at the uh, tech news site, The Register. Uh, One thing becomes more certain as we increase the depth uh, and complexity of automation, the value of humans. We're messy, expensive, lazy, difficult, and entirely necessary. So let's show our humanity and uh, extend our warmth to the panel. Thank you for listening. If you would like to hear more of our podcasts, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast. Mm -hmm.